Ezekiel 36, 20 to 32. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that the people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all of your uncleanlinesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways, and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. This is the very word of God. Well, we've been studying for some time now the prophet Ezekiel and his book in our Bibles, and we will continue to do so here as we move into uh, Holy Week and Easter Sunday next week. And uh, I don't find that to be difficult to do because when we read our Bibles, especially when we read the Old Testament, we're reading about God's activity in real time and space, God's actions in history. Uh, God acting in a way to bring about his salvation into the world. When we read the Old Testament, like the rest of the Bible, we learn not only about what God did, his acts in history, but we are also led to know what these acts mean, their significance. When we read about God's saving activity in history, we find, among other things, a God who is alive, a God who is active. And a God who is alive and who is active cannot allow his world to be ruined by death. 
So as we turn into this passage this morning in Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36, we learn not only a little bit more about who this God is, who acts to bring salvation into his world, we also learn about what he cares about. Part of knowing who God is, is knowing what God cares about. And this morning from Ezekiel 35 and 36, I'd like us to consider this morning three things that God is concerned about, three things God cares about. This will help us know a little bit more about who the God of the Bible is. First, God cares about his land. Second, God cares about his people. And lastly, God cares about his name or his reputation. God cares about his land God cares about his people, and God cares about his name. So first, God's saving actions in history. And again, let's remind ourselves, when we're reading much, pretty much all the Old Testament, we're looking at specific times and places in world history. Ezekiel, of course, comes to us talking about a time six centuries or so before the coming of Jesus, the sixth century BC, the time of the Babylonian exile, Israel being crushed, destroyed, exiled out of their land, the holy city falling to King Nebuchadnezzar. This is all the stuff of history. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that these are real historical events. But the God who acts in history, his saving actions in history have everything to do, and sometimes we Christians aren't really clear about this. They have everything to do with God acting to rescue his land, to care for the world that he made in the beginning. So take a quick look with me, if you will, at the 35th chapter of Ezekiel. This chapter consists of a prophecy that Ezekiel is told to proclaim against Mount Seir. Now, in the Bible, Mount Seir stands for the entire country of Edom. The Edomites, of course, are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. So these are distant cousins of the people of Israel. But the God of Israel here says that he is against the Edomites and is going to bring judgment upon them and devastate their land, their country, their nation. Their particular crime for which God says he will bring judgment is stated in the 35th chapter in a couple of places. In verse 5, the judgment is justified because the Edomites, quote, cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Throughout the biblical record, Edom and Israel come into conflict in spite of the fact that God told Israel to show respect to these distant relatives. During the reign of Saul and David and Solomon, the Edomites were subjugated to Israel. But later in the monarchy, when Israel was in steep decline, that's when the Edomites grew the most powerful. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 8. They reached the height of their prosperity in the 7th century BC as Israel was heading toward exile. It seems from the biblical record that the Edomites relished the fall of Israel and took advantage of their demise to advance their own interests. Ezekiel 35, like the short prophecy of Obadiah, is a prophecy against Edom for their betrayal of the people of God. 
A more sinister crime committed by the Edomites is mentioned in verse 10. Because you said, these two nations, speaking of Israel the north and the north, Judah and the south, and these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them. That's why God brings judgment on the Edomites. Interestingly, archaeological evidence demonstrates that there were, in fact, Edomite settlements in southern Israel right about the time that Ezekiel is, is writing. And Ezekiel 35.10 tells us why that's a problem from God's point of view. The Edomites thought that they could just help themselves to the land of Israel as the Israelites were being exiled to Babylon. They thought that they could just take possession of a land that had been abandoned by the people of God. But here's the problem. The land of Israel was not ultimately Israel's land. It was God's land. Look at verse 10. Yahweh was there. It was not, therefore, up for grabs, free to be claimed by anyone other than those to whom the God of Israel allowed to settle in it. So, because God cares, he will go to work against the Edomites, and they're going to have to go. Their settlements in the land of Israel will not be allowed to continue. They would not only be expelled from the land of Israel, their own land would be devastated because God's concern for his own name moves him to defend his holy land from those who have no right to be there. Now, it's no wonder then that there continue to be to this day certain territorial disputes that come with theological arguments. Ezekiel 36 adds to this perspective. Chapter 35 consists, as we've seen, of a prophecy against the Edomites for their unrightful claim of God's land. Chapter 36, and these two chapters clearly go together, consists of a prophecy to the Israelites, telling them not only that their God the God of Israel will judge those who have taken over their land, verses 1 through 7, but also that their God will restore them to their land again, verses 8 to 15. So there can be no doubt that there is such a thing as, what shall we call it, a holy land, a real place on earth that God says belongs to him and that he alone gets to say who is allowed to live there. However, from a Christian perspective, we should be clear about this, the Holy Land is not simply the disputed territory of Palestine. From the Christian perspective, and the Christian claim is that in Jesus of Nazareth, the promised kingdom of God has come so that God has reclaimed as his holy land the entire earth. Yeah, even Oklahoma. John, Pastor John, we didn't talk about this, but he started out our service reading from the 24th Psalm. And I've got it right here in my manuscript, brother. I love it when that happens. Psalm 24.1 
The psalmist knew this day was coming. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. So let's put it together. Because God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, his concern for his own holy name moves him to do something to rescue this world that he made from destruction. The living God cannot allow his world to be ruined by death. It moves him to do something to rescue this world that he made. And when I say the world, yes, I'm talking about the material world, the soil and the rocks, the trees and the rivers, the birds and the mountains, the sky and the seas. Caleb, that's the reason I wanted to sing that song. Where are you, brother? Oh, yeah, that's the reason why I wanted to sing that song right there. That point in the sermon, I said, can we do this newly approved song? Can we do Psalm 150? And you guys sang that thing like you knew it today. That was awesome. We're going to sing it again at the end of the service. God loves his world, so let everything in this world cry out in praise of the God who saves his land. Now, this is abundantly clear, by the way, in Ezekiel 36. So in case you just think I'm, you know, dreaming this up, just take a look. Take a look. God speaks in Ezekiel 36 to the land. (laughs) He talks to the material world. And he speaks to the land promising that it will one day flourish again because, verse 10 says, his people will soon come home. God is for his land, verse 9 says. And when we get to verse 13, God promises that the day will come when the land will no longer devour people. Instead, verse 10 says that God will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, the true people of God, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. It's a new creation. Verse 11 speaks of the holy land being repopulated with both human and animal life, both of which will multiply and be fruitful. That phrase reminds us of God's original creation in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. You see the new creation right here in Ezekiel 36? This is the promise of God. If the care of God's world was part of God's purposes for us in the beginning, yes, God makes a world, puts us in it, puts human beings in it and says, multiply, fill the earth, tend it, take care of it. If that was God's purpose for us in the beginning, let us not now preach a gospel that suggests that the purpose is no longer to be taken seriously. After all, God's promise at the end of verse 11, when he says to the Holy Land that he will, look at this, quote, do more good to you than ever before, means not that God intends one day to scrap his world, but that we are instead to look for the day when he will redeem and utterly transform it into the flourishing paradise it was meant to be all along. The world's best days are ahead of it.
But God's saving activity in history is not only about, not only shows us that God cares about his land, his, his world, his earth, his cosmos. It's also and necessarily about the salvation of his people who are meant to inhabit his land. Look, God's concern for the world that he made certainly does not mean that God thinks of us human beings as a blight on his world. It's already plain from Ezekiel 36 verses 8 to 15 that God's concern for his land means that he must be concerned for his people that he made to live in it. Are you with me? Thanks, Jackie. Sometimes I wonder. Can't always tell by the look on your faces. When God says in verse 12 that, look at this, that he will let people walk on you to the land, that is not a curse. That's a blessing. So we should take note right here, perhaps, of the words of the prophet Isaiah who said in Isaiah 45, verse 18, that the Lord did not create the earth empty, but formed it to be inhabited. Or just consider Psalm 115, verse 16. I read this just a few weeks ago, and I said, whoa, there it is. Do we grab this? Do we get this? This is what the psalmist writes. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Boy, we really need to be precise here. God's love for us, his people, is not to be pitted against God's love for everything else that he made. Salvation in the Bible is not about God rescuing his people by pulling them out of his world. It is about God rescuing his people and his world all together. Thank you. This is, you've got to get this, people of God. This is the gospel we preach. You say, I'm not sure about that. All right, fine, fine. This is, let me take you to the New Testament. How's that? Romans chapter eight. Many would say maybe the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. Romans chapter eight explicitly says what I am here preaching. You test me, see if I'm right. Here we go. Romans 8, verse 18, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's like the whole cosmos is just on the edge of its seat, waiting with bated breath for the people of God to be revealed. And clearly in the verses right before that, this revelation is the, the, seeing the people of God in the glory that they were meant to possess all along as God's rightful agent in his world. When the, cre- the creation says, you know what we want? You know what the rocks and the trees are crying out for? We would just like there to be ma- good bosses around here, good managers. We would like to flourish, but... 
It depends on the people of God having their glory revealed. Why does the creation long even groan for this? Because God's intention from the beginning was that the steward it was that through the stewardship of his people all of creation would function the way God designed it to function. The brokenness of the world, and we all know that the world is broken, the creation is groaning. The brokenness of the world will be resolved not by taking human beings out of the world into a disembodied heaven. No, the world will be put right when the people of God are put right and once again steward the world as God's agents were meant to do from the beginning. So your little puppy dog that looks up at you is saying, I just can't wait for you to be what you're supposed to be. That's what that look really means. So while human beings are not a blight on the world that God made, it is nevertheless true that the sin that we bring into the world is a real problem. Here in Ezekiel 36, verse 17, God explains. Look at this. You've got to see this here. That's why I started the scripture reading right around here. God explains that when his people lived in the land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Okay, are you with me here? All right, so the comparison that's made at the end of verse 17, I know, we're not going to read it out loud, it will probably offend many modern readers who do not understand the concept of ritual defilement in the Bible. The point that is being made is that the land has been contaminated by coming into contact with contaminated people. And so God, who cares about his land, is forced to respond. He's got to clean it. He's got to get it rid of its defilement. And so the pouring out of his wrath on his people is done as a cleansing of the land because his people have brought this defilement into his world. Do you see how that's working? Okay, but here's what you've got to see. If you want to understand the Bible, here's a a really interesting place in the Old Testament to see what the New Testament is just declaring as loud as can be. Because what you should see right here is that the problem of sin is always a heart and hands problem. Verse 17 speaks of Israel defiling the land by their ways and their deeds. But verse 18 speaks of them defiling the land, look at it, because of their idols. Do you see that? In other words, worship devotion, and action, they have to act in unison or the result is, in a, Bible, in a Bible word, sin. Let me say this again. Proper worship and proper action must act in unison. You gotta have them both. 
You've got to have them both. Or if you don't, the result is sin, brokenness, defilement. So if a person thinks that all that matters is just doing the right thing, then somebody could just ask, but how do you know what is right if you are not devoted to the right God, deity? It's undeniable that actions will differ based on who or what we worship. So if, for example, just for example, you could think this out. There's lots of ways to think this out. But if, for example, a person is most devoted to themselves, which is, by the way, the most natural thing to be, when you wake up, you're thinking about you, probably. It's pretty natural. So if a person is most devoted to themselves, then don't act surprised if their actions show that they are most devoted to themselves. That sounded profound. I think it was. You will evaluate your actions. If what you're most devoted to is your own self-interest, your own well-being, then you're gonna evaluate your actions based on your own perception of success and happiness. By the way, just try that out in any relationship. Just try that, that out in your marriage and see if that's gonna work for you. Just be devoted to yourself. Okay, but here, I gotta speak a word to us Christians. Because what we need to be more critical of, I think here, is our own our own sort of problem. I said that right worship and right action must act in unison. You've got to have them both or the result is sin. And here I want to say that the connection between worship and action means that we Christians must not think that all that matters is that we are devoted to the right God. The question for us must be then, but how do you know that you are devoted to the right God if your actions do not seem to line up with what it is you say you believe? Now watch, it is not unbelievers, non-Christians, who are usually accused of hypocrisy. It's us who say that we are devoted to the one true God. And if our ways and our deeds are a stench to God, it is definitive proof that no matter what we say we confess, no matter what it is we say, I believe in, I believe in, I believe in, it will be definitive proof that we are idolaters at heart and that we have polluted God's land just like anyone else. So God, in verse 19, God's judgment on Israel was his sending them out of the land, sending them into exile, expelling them out of his land. But don't you see? Look at verse 20. Here we are. This is, this is the Christian gospel. Look at verse 20. This creates its own problem. Verse 20 says, when they came to the nations, they profaned my holy name. And stop there. You're like, Okay, so they keep on doing the bad deeds. 
That's not what it says. I mean, maybe they did. But look at, why, look at why Ezekiel says, when they went into exile, they profaned my name. Look what it says. Because the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. Now, how does that profane God's name? Well, don't you see, God's response to his people's sin, wrath, judgment, exile, creates a new kind of problem. Simply by God's people being in exile, the people continue to profane God's name because God himself had made a promise to his land so long as his people remain out of the land, God's own name will be tarnished. Now, you got to stay with me here. This, this, this is so critical to the gospel. And I'm getting to it right here. You see, this situation alone requires the living God to act. There has to be some kind of resolution. God's people deserve God's wrath and are exiled out of his land because they've polluted his land. They've disobeyed his ways. They've acted in wickedness. But simply by being in exile, simply by not being in the land they were meant to inhabit, God's own promise is in jeopardy. Are you with me? So... If God is truly there, if the God of Israel is the true and living God, he has to act. Verse 22 tells us as much, and so does the New Testament. Because Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20, is precisely the situation that Paul has in mind at the end of Romans chapter 2 when he cites it. You want to understand Romans chapter 2? Then you better get Ezekiel 36 because Paul is depending on it. The name of God is being blasphemed by the nations simply because the people of God are in exile. And when God acts to solve this problem, he does so to vindicate his own name. He will act in a way that will demonstrate to all the nations, to all peoples, he says in verse 23, that he alone is the Lord. His acts of salvation are compulsory. God is compelled to act, not because we have anything on him, that he owes us anything, that he is in our debt. No. When God acts to save, he does so because his saving activity is who he is. It's in line with his own character. Now, let me just show us this. This is our third point and we'll be done. God cares not only about his land and his people meant to inhabit the land, but God ultimately and praise God this is true, cares about his name. 
his reputation. God tells the exiles in Babylon, and he tells us, what it is that he will do, how he's, gonna do, how he's going to solve this problem. You don't have to go to the New Testament. You can see it right here in Ezekiel 36. I mean, the New Testament is just expounding on Ezekiel 36. God has already shown six centuries before Jesus was born, God has already given a really good idea of what he's going to do to solve the problem. It's spelled out for us in verses 24 to 38 of Ezekiel 36. And these are exciting verses, not simply because of what they promise, but because of, I like how Daryl said it in the pastoral prayer, but because of where we stand in history, where we stand in 2023, what we have seen already fulfilled, what was in the 6th century BC still something yet to come is for us in 2023 something that's already been done. So let's take a look. First, when God acts to save for his own namesake, his people will be brought out of exile and back into their land. Verse 24. Ezekiel 36, 24. And you say, well, uh, duh, <laughs> uh, of course. But, but get this. A, a, what does a return from exile mean? What it means then is really important here. Not just what it is coming back into the land out of captivity, but what does it mean? You gotta get this. The way to understand what it means is to remember why God's people were exiled in the first place. Verse 25 makes it plain that when God's people come to the end of their exile, hey, look, when the day comes and your exile is finally over, here's what it means. It means that you have been cleansed from your wicked ways. It means that the problem of wrongful worship will have been dealt with. The end of exile means the forgiveness of sins. So when Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity, it was clear that this was not really the end of their exile. They were, they were in their land, we're, we're back in the land, but they remained under the thumb of succeeding Gentile empires. You know your history, right? What they were looking for was the day when their exile would finally be over, when their sins would have been dealt with, when their sins would be forgiven. That's when exile would, be, would end. And that's why, brothers and sisters, one of the great controversies surrounding Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was his claim that he had come forgiving sins, right? The forgiveness of sins, like the end of exile, could only mean that God's salvation had come. Okay? Now, look at the next one. In the same way, When God acts to save his people for the glory of his name, verse 26 says, he will give his people a new heart and a new spirit. 
he will remove from them their heart of stone. That is, you know, a heart that is unresponsive to God and his words. He would give them instead here a heart of flesh, means a heart that's soft, responsive to him. And verse 27 says how God's going to do that. It's an amazing, amazing promise. God says, I will put my spirit in them, causing them to be responsive to me and obedient to me. That's the promise. God's people were here told, look for the day, not only when your exile is over, meaning your sins have been forgiven, the land has been cleansed of its defilement, but also look forward to the day when God himself dwells not just among you, but in you. And God, like a shepherd, leads his people to do his bidding. So then, in John chapter 20 and verse 22, when Jesus did this weird thing, he breathed on his disciples, and then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Just know what that means. It means not only that the exile is now over, the land has been cleansed, it means now that God has taken out of you your heart of stone. He has filled you instead with his own Holy Spirit. And by the way, the entire book of Acts tells the story. I mean, everybody, like the the name of the book, the book of Acts, it's like the Acts of, some of your Bibles say the Acts of the Disciples. True. But more likely, it's the act of the Holy Spirit indwelling the disciples. The whole book of Acts is all about this. It's the story of what happened in the world when God's own Holy Spirit came upon not only the Jews, but here's the shock, but upon the Gentiles, the people from every tribe and tongue who were coming to believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world. And included in this conversion is what Ezekiel 36 verse 31 predicted would be the case. The people would come to see the evil of their ways. They would loathe themselves, how Ezekiel says it. They would recognize their sin and hate it and turn from it. Genuine repentance of sin then is a sign of the new heart and an indication that one belongs to the true, redeemed people of God. And then there's one more, one more promise. Not only would it mean that the land had been cleansed, the exile was over, forgiveness of sins have come. Not only would it mean that the new heart, the promised new heart that comes by the filling of God's Holy Spirit is now upon you. There's one last thing. And if you don't look carefully, you you could miss it. Verses 33 to 36, take a look. Ezekiel 36 33 to 36 tells us, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. The waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. 
And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Now, Christian, listen. That prophecy right there, many Bible commentators over the years have said, this is the not yet part. This is the world that will eventually be true when Christ returns and all has been made plain. And if that's your perspective, this is an intra-Christian debate. So that's fine. I just disagree with you. Because the whole prophecy of Ezekiel 36 is that look for it when the end of exile comes, the forgiveness of sins, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all who are truly God's people. And we know that's true. That's, the Bible couldn't be more clear in the New Testament. That has already come. Then also, Ezekiel, everything that's being said here will be true. God says he will cause the cities to be inhabited, the waste places rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled. Do we just now see a world like, boom, magically, there it is, it's tilled? How do you get your land tilled, farmer? Just pray. I hope tomorrow morning it's just done. (laughs) You put your hand to the plow. All of a sudden, God says, I'm going to do this work too. Through my redeemed people, restored into my land, the land will begin to once again bear the fruit of the kingdom of God. That's what New Creation Monday is all about. See, I knew I was going to get that in somehow. God's people are encouraged to once again imagine, what if it's true? What if salvation has come? What if the exile is over? What if we are now in the land we are meant to inhabit? Side note, this is a coming attraction for next week. Going to have to save it for next week. But so long as God's people remain in exile from his land, that is dead, not alive, not living in Oklahoma, I might live somewhere else. Okay, never mind, don't throw stones. Um, As long as God's people remain dead, exile is still a reality. But the New Testament promises that if you've died with Christ, you've already been raised with him. Just as sure as he came out of that tomb on Easter Sunday, your resurrection is also now guaranteed. This is the land you're meant to inhabit. So by his grace, knowing your sins are forgiven, knowing his Holy Spirit is poured out upon you, then let's put our hands to the plow. Let's go into places that are a desolation and renew it for the glory of God. Do you see that? That's our calling. That's our mission. Now, before we end, one last part here. (laughs) In verses 37 to 38, God says, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. 
Now, just stop there. We're not gonna get into the increasing their people like a flock. We could talk about that later. But here's the most striking thing about Ezekiel 36, 37. This is the first time in the book of Ezekiel that God allows himself to be entreated, to be prayed to. Every time else that the people are trying to speak to God, God says, I'm not going to listen to them. The judgment is upon them. Exile is coming. I have decided and I will not turn back. But here, God says, when the day comes, when I have brought an end to their exile, forgiven their sins, put a new spirit within them, and the kingdom of God begins to be seen slowly by slowly, like a farmer tills the ground, then also God says, I will allow my people to pray to me. He says, I will do this so that they will know that I am the Lord. And every single time that you bow your head and pray these words, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray that prayer, you are living in the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, where the promise of God is a new heart and a new spirit as the means by which God sanctifies, vindicates his own name in his people. So let's get to the work by the grace of God because a new creation has come. The living, the dead are now alive. Can that be true? Well, just come back next week. We call that a teaser in the industry. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, O God. Hallowed be your name. Hmm. May you fill your people with wonder again at this world that you made. May you give us a vision, O oh God, of what Easter Sunday means, not just what happened, but what it now means. This long-awaited prophecy has been fulfilled right before our eyes. May we who name the name of Jesus, may we who claim to be his disciples, believe in the reality that our sins are forgiven, the exile is over, the Holy Spirit has been sent to indwell all who truly belong to him, leading us like the good shepherd you are into the good works you've called us to do for the glory of your name. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray, to live in the reality of this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.